0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where do you come from? I'm Emily Abraham and
2: I come from Knightsbridge in London.
1: Emily, you have this Instagram platform as well because you have your daughter and your husband and we'll come on to that. But just before we do that, um, can we go back to the very beginning and tell me where you are? Because you did a podcast, you have your own podcast and you did a podcast with your foster mum and it totally moved me to tears. (laughs) It was just so beautiful. It was so powerful. Your relationship, your foster mum was just, I just wanted to hug both of you in that moment. So can we take it back to the very beginning? Where were you born and what happened in your life?
2: So thank you very much. First of all, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, So I was born in the southwest of England and in 1977, my mum was 15 when she was pregnant with me and she had me at 16. She was one of six children and my nan and granddad had gone separate ways by the time I was born. So there was a little bit of turmoil there for my mum. And I just grew up in quite a... sometimes I struggle to find the words it's it was very turbulent that's the word I was very turbulent childhood so my mum was a young girl she wasn't a woman she was a young girl My dad wasn't around. He was 37, married with three children. Um, And actually, his children were at school with my mum. She didn't know this. And it just turned out that when she found out she was pregnant was about the time she found out that he was married and he had three children. She didn't know any of this. Um, He treated her like a princess. He bought her fur coats. She used to be picked up from school in a Rolls Royce. He knew how old she was. This is a fully grown adult man. And having a relationship with an underage girl, may we add? Look, at the end of the day, my dad's passed now. Um, I don't really want to speak bad of him, but that's the facts. The facts are those. Um, he is from Cyprus. Uh, was from Cyprus, so he's a Greek Cypriot. And my grandfather is was Hungarian. So my grandfather came here, and met my nan she was a very beautiful woman and he took on her two children that she already had and adopted them actually and they just set out and had four children of their own so that's how the six children came came to be and then I think when my mum had me my nan kind of was going through a really turbulent time with my like really bad my mum used to run away she'd go missing she went to Scotland for two months nobody knew where she was she was a very stressful child to have so when I was born I feel like my nan felt that I was second chance at Rachel. So my mum's name was Rachel. And I felt like she kind of took on um, wanting to be a mother role in my life. Um, I think what happened at that point, my nan was already in a very, very bad relationship with someone that she remarried after my granddad. So my nan and my granddad. So this is very relevant, actually, to why my mum was the way she was my nan and grandad had to have their marriage annulled after many many years because he was already married in hungary Mm -hmm. and he already had a wife and children in hungary and when she found out it broke her heart And basically, she begged him to marry her again after the annulment was complete. And he just said no. So she was very broken and torn. And I think she wasn't a person that dealt with pain very well. And so her children kind of just got the chance to run riot at that point, do what they wanted with their lives. Hence, my mum having a relationship with a much older man. um, And pretty much all of her daughters having relationships with much older men, actually. And my uncle, just kind of he was the one of only boy and those five sisters. He just kind of went his own way and we rarely saw him. So my mum was just kind of this free spirit. She could do what she wanted when she wanted. And then this baby came along and she's sixteen. You know, I've I actually went through my photo box like I've got these massive chests of photographs at my house. Uh I went through it the night before last and I came across a picture of me and my mum and she looks like a little girl. I'm a tiny babe in arms and she looks like a little girl who's trying to be an adult. Then, so my nan's in this really bad relationship and she's already drinking because she can't deal with the relationship she's in. They're very physically aggressive to each other other well they beat each other up he beats her up she reacts I always used to go and visit her and she'd have massive you know in the 80s those huge sunglasses with the thin arms yeah you know the ones that went above your eyebrows and onto your chin bless her so she was very very stylish, my grandma was. Very beautiful woman. She had an amazing figure for her age. Men literally fell at her feet. She was, she could have had any man she chose, and then she chose this guy that she had a very abusive, toxic, codependent relationship with. So I'd go there, and she'd be covering up her brute black eyes with these massive sunglasses, and she'd be sat down, and she'd be pouring a mug of drink, and it'd be... It would basically be um, vodka. Wow. She'd be drinking vodka. Yeah. So, I mean, at my oh. early years, um, my nan was a drinker. So she was in this relationship. She was, it was very abusive, physically abusive. I think it was probably very mentally abusive as well. Um, they just were the wrong people to be with each other. And, um, I feel like she kind of neglected her children at that point and that's where these relationships came in the girls doing what they wanted to do you know my mum was out clubbing at 14 my nan was making her dresses like outfits that, you know like one of them looked like a Jane outfit from Tarzan it was like suede and it was all like it was a beautiful outfit don't get me wrong my nan was an amazing seamstress but mm-hmm. you don't dress your 14 year old like that yeah. or allow her to go out clubbing with her older sisters it just didn't when I think about it now it just goes against everything I know about parenting you know um, and so my mum was doing these bad things you know she was getting in with the wrong crowd she was doing things she shouldn't be doing fell pregnant with me and at 16 she just couldn't cope I mean could I have coped at 16 with a newborn baby and, and not much support because my mum's drinking my dad's doing his own thing my sisters are all the same age as me and going off and doing it. no you can't and then She met a gentleman, and I'm not going to say his name because I actually swore I'd never let his name cross my lips ever again, but he was a a very bad man. He he was like the devil incarnate, and my early memories are very traumatic because of this man and the things he used to do. He would hang me out of a second-story window by my ankle and dangle me out of the window and tell my mum that she had to go and prostitute herself to make money for their, heroin addi- uh, for their heroin addiction. And she'd be begging him, please don't drop her, please don't drop her. And this was at the very beginning of their relationship, you know, and he would, he, you know, do you remember those old fires that were like, it was like, yeah. it was, a, it had like a filament and ring a ring on it with a mesh on it. And he would literally, I had long brown curly hair, this tiny little tot, and he would hold my <sighs> against the fire and tell her go and do what i'm telling you to do so that was the beginning of their relationship so she was completely under his control and then he introduced her to heroin Uh, and what transpired from that was that she became a heroin addict which is really really unfortunate um what that meant for me was that I was completely neglected. So a, a young girl who couldn't cope with a child was now in a, in the throes of a huge addiction that she couldn't control. And I just got forgotten about essentially. Um, my nan would beg her to let me go to my nan's and every now and then she'd let me, or she'd let my nan come round and my nan had make sure I got fed and bathed and I said on the podcast like you know she would lick her finger and wipe my face and there'd be like a streak where she'd done it. And she'd say, Rachel, you're not looking after her, but my mum would not let anyone take me. She was adamant. And it wasn't because she loved me so much that she couldn't bear to have me go with anyone else. It was that she didn't want anyone else to have me. I was like this possession that my family, my mum saw. As like a bargaining tool, I guess. So she'd say to my nan, "No, you can't see her unless you give me this, or you can't, you, you know, you can't take her out unless you give me money, or you know." It was a, just a bargaining. I was just a bargaining tool, which is really sad because the times that she would refuse my nan to have me, you know, I would not eat. I was not bathed i was left to my own devices in the house and this house at this point we'd moved from the flat on the second floor and we were now in a house that the council had given her a lovely little house like a cottagey style house and the stairs were super steep and i've lost count of the times that i fell down those stairs just because i was unsupervised um there would be loads of men and women in the living room they'd all be doing drugs they'd all be off their face the room would just be a plume of smoke and i remember being so small that like i used to crawl through the room to try and get to the garden and and i even said to my auntie recently i said i've got some scars on my back and I've got this memory and I don't know if it's correct. And she was like, what is it? And I said, did people put cigarettes out on my back or stuff? And she's, she just, my aunt just went quiet. And she was like, I cannot believe that these memories are things that you can remember because you were so young. So, like, I literally would have cigarette burns or spliff burns, call them spliffs, whatever you want to call it, a drug cigarette, on my, like where they just drop it and it would land on my back and then it would roll off. But I'd still have that... You Know that, that it was not a good environment, and my uncle Alan, God rest his soul, was a very good. I mean, he, he had his faults, all meant everybody does, nobody's perfect. But he used to go to the wholesalers and he would pick up great big tins of smash, like yes. this big, big tins like that, and he'd bring them to the house and he'd buy these multi packets of cod in sauce, and from mm. about, I'd say. About three years old, when I tell people this, they they don't believe me. But I swear to God, from about three years old, I was having to learn to make myself rehydrated smash and cod in sauce. Otherwise, I didn't eat. And if we didn't have that food then I wouldn't eat. And I was, you know, I just wasn't well looked after. Um, but then my nan would get me and she'd feed me up and she'd make me these beautiful dresses and she'd take me and buy me these gorgeous patent shoes, these little ballerina patent shoes. And she looked, so I had like the complete extremes, Mm. you know, in my life. And, But I saw some terrible things that children should never see. Yeah, Children should not be in that environment. And what kills me the most about that time is that social services didn't take me away from my mum, knowing that she was a heroin addict, knowing that she was walking the streets to make money for her addiction, for her and her boyfriends, whoever they were at the time. She married that man. Um, I don't know how long it lasted, but she took on his his name um, and then they they separated. Maybe he went to prison. I don't know. And then there was like just man after man after man after man after man. It was just she always had a new boyfriend because she was an addict and obviously very vulnerable, very easy to manipulate. Um, I remember she was going out with one guy, and then she was with his brother a couple of weeks later. It was just like a very unhealthy. It makes me feel sick thinking yeah. about it. Environment for anybody to be in, let alone such a young child.
1: Emily, did you did, did you know that you loved her then? Like, did you love her? Yeah
2: as sad as it it feels um, to say, I don't have any feelings towards my mum and I don't ever remember having feelings towards my mum. Now, I think I did because when she passed, I was heartbroken, Mm. obviously. Um, And I always used to have like little pictures of her by my bed. Sorry, this thing keeps going off let me turn this thing. Um, yeah I always used to have this um, these pictures of her by my bed and I think social services and my foster parents basically decided that that was really unhealthy and that you know these shouldn't be there because it was like almost a shrine to my mum that I was never being I was never being able to get past it um, and I was traumatised as well because obviously that that angst and ang- and 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 everything I felt in that time, those first six years of my life, was my norm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know any different. I didn't know that that's not how life was. So to move from that in, into my foster family's home, which was complete polar opposite, was that was traumatic in itself. Because I'm like, well how can you know like I just wanted them to love me I wanted to be loved and I wanted to love them and I, and I was constantly trying for that but I don't now as an adult being four, nearly 46 years old remember having feelings of love for my mum and I, now when I talk about her I'm not angry I'm not upset I'm not hurt I'm not happy when I talk about her I don't have feelings of love I nothing no hatred nothing it's just there's nothing, I'm indifferent. Yeah. It's an indifferent feeling.
1: And we can talk about how you got there, but I just want to touch on why then, like when your mum passed, because that was heartbreaking for me. If you could just tell us what happened. But
2: sorry, I think, have I come off the screen? One sec. No, you're okay. Sorry. You're still there. You're still there. still
1: there. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Um, so Sorry, ask that question again. When you, like, talk to and we can talk about how you are feeling indifferent now yeah but that story that moment that you told about your mum passing that like i yeah. sobbed I was in the bath listening and I absolutely yeah. sobbed so can you tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah i'm glad you asked me about this actually because i think it needs clarifying for people so at this point in our lives I was just about six, I was six, just over six years old. Uh, my birthday is in se- September and she passed away on February the 22nd, um, which I believe is like a Tuesday or Wednesday or something. And our, we were living with my granddad's best friend and his girlfriend at the time who was younger than my mother. So this is an old man and a young girl, and they're living together. And his nickname was Kojak. Although he had obviously clearly had faults, he looked after me very, very well. In fact, at the that- that point in my life he was my safe space I always knew that if I was with Kojak I was going to be well looked after and nobody would touch me nothing bad would happen to me if I was with him so we have been kicked out of our lovely little cottage home that the council have given because my mum's obviously not paying rent and we're living with him and his girlfriend uh in a flat which was not far just around the corner from where our little house was I think it's been demolished now but anyway so we're living there in this one bedroom flat so literally it would be me my mum and his girlfriend all in one bed together and he would just be doing whatever he was doing sleeping on the couch or whatever or he would sleep when we were awake type of thing um So I remember being in bed and my mum coming in from a night of doing what she used to do at the night time. And I remember a story that she said that she got mugged, they took her handbag, she had all her money in there. But somehow she still managed to get some heroin and she went into the bathroom, which was ensuite to the bed and closed the door, came out, got into bed with me and never woke up now when I woke up in the morning I knew she was dead and I went in the front room by this time the woman and the man that we were living with were in there and I said I don't know whether it was in the middle of the night or whether it was in the morning but I said she's not you know mummy's dead she's not alive she's not breathing whatever it was that I said I don't remember my exact words and I'd lie if I said I did I don't Mm. Um, and then all I remember from that is that My granddad was called over. He picked me up and he took me to school like it was a normal day. And everybody was like, oh, what a wonderful granddad normalizing it for you. No, that wasn't his motive. My granddad's motive was that he didn't want anyone to know that she passed. That's my take from it. And so he was waiting for his, I I feel like his line of thought was get her to school. Social services will pick her up in the afternoon. I'm not going to be there. Rachel won't be picking her up. Goodness knows where her grandma is because she'll be drinking, drunk somewhere. So, you know, he calculated that I feel. Did he calculate it because he felt being in care was the best thing for me? Maybe he did. But, His thoughts at that time was not, oh, let's normalise this for her and get her to school. It was, I need to look after myself in this situation. And this is what I feel like I need to do. So that was the, that was it for him. So I got to school. And then nobody picked me up. And it was like I've said before, this was a regular occurrence. So I would sit outside the admin office in the chair waiting for phone calls to be made. And let's not forget that these were landline phones at the time. Nobody had mobile phones. So you couldn't privately go in a room and make a phone call. I was privy to all of those phone calls. Emily's not being picked up again. Is there any? Are there any social workers that can come and get her? Can you find her a replacement for tonight? These were the conversations that I was hearing. So for me, it was normal. Nobody's picked me up. Okay, it's happened again. You know, but I think I didn't really know what was going on with my mum. I knew she was dead, but I didn't, I think I was in shock. Of course, yeah. I don't know. You know and I was a a child that knew that you kept your mouth shut because of the things that I saw growing up so I knew that when I went into school I was not allowed to talk about the fact that what I'd seen I didn't ever talk about the the things that I saw at home Um, which I find I mean I'm still like that now Mm -hmm. If somebody tells me a secret, I'll go to my grave with that secret. I'm very good at protecting people's treasures, you know. Um, And so, yeah, I just, I think I just plodded on. And obviously the situation was that nobody had space. Only the white, I can't say the surname, sorry, take that out. Only, Only my foster family had space and they were baby foster carers Uh, But being Christians with good hearts, they said, no problem, it's only one night, we'll take her in. And then that one night turned into the weekend. So from the beginning of the middle to beginning of the week turned into the weekend. And that's when she was discovered. Um, And my uh, social worker came, Alan, came and told me, um, and I think... Because he told me, I felt free to let it out. And I just remember sobbing and being heartbroken. And then also, not only that, I feel like the memories I have of those emotions are are of relief also. Because I knew that I never had to go back into that situation ever again. Although I didn't know where I was going to be because my foster family weren't supposed to have me full time. They, they weren't those kind of foster carers. And so there was a little bit of that, "Hmm, where am I going to be? You know, I still wasn't settled and it was just again at like another turbulent time. So when my foster family said, had their family meeting and said, look, let's let her stay that one night then turned into seven years. So, You know, that was a huge sacrifice for them because any child that has gone through the things that I went through is not an easy child to deal with. I was very introverted. I was very quiet. I had very funny foibles about me. I had to have everything very specific I was, I had this, I've always had this very um, keen eye for detail and things had to be in certain places, but it was a way of me feeling in control of my life. So the more toys they bought me and the more things that I had there, the more regimented my life had to be. And even to this day, I cannot cope with mess. It, It messes with my brain. I can't relax. And I, I... I've tried working on it, believe me, I have, because I'm a mother of three children and we also have three fur babies too. So <laughs> it's not easy to keep on top of that. But there are days when I'm like, if it's been hectic at work, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I get home and there's a mess. I feel anxious and, I, and it's all, I know, I know. And I have to talk to my son and say, listen, this is not about the house being messy. This is about your childhood and you've got to, take some time out so I usually go to my bed and relax relax. but yeah so that's kind of where I was and how I got there
1: and when you were under social care and with your foster mom and I would implore everybody to go over and listen to that podcast um did they give you counseling was there any counseling was there any therapy was there anything there like years ago I know there probably wasn't but was there anything for you
2: so I think obviously they recognised that my behaviour wasn't normal because I was internalising everything. I think I probably cried a couple of times at school because I remember sitting on my teacher's lap. Her name was Mrs Gillespie. She was an older lady. She was lovely. And I just remember being in tears. And I remember one of the children saying, oh, she's not crying again, is she? Because they just didn't know what had gone on in my life. They didn't understand. And she she was always very protective of me and she would cuddle me for as long as she could and then she'd basically have to put me in the head's office or with somebody else because they didn't really have like those what was it called? Whatever they have in schools now for kids to go and talk to. I can't remember what it is now. But yeah. um so um oh sorry ask a question am gonna come off going, completely because
1: um, with the like counseling to so the was there like oh, outside okay. oh, yeah, can, yeah. yeah yeah so there's nothing in school there was
2: literally nothing in school and they recognized that I'm not acting normally so I got referred to the hospital and I remember going for some kind of like my first so Elaine took me my foster mum like for some kind of analysis I remember and I was really nervous and I really didn't want to go and she was like look it'll help you and The the extent of my therapy was that I had to go. I can't remember whether it was once a month or once every two weeks. And I would literally sit there and draw pictures. And that was the extent of a child who's gone through this turbulent, horrible life, then lost her mum. And then is now in more turmoil. That was the extent of it for me as a child, and and it didn't last long either. I remember it not being for very long. So they didn't know. They didn't really have the capability or the knowledge to deal with something like mm. that at such a young for a child of such a young age.
1: And can I ask you, with Elaine um, and your foster dad, did you accept their love easily, or did you find that hard to accept?
2: So I think it was the opposite way. Actually, I think because I was so broken, I was constantly telling them. And even Elaine will say I was constantly saying I love you, I love you, I love you. Like it was excessively not normal. I love you, I love you, I love you, and wanting to hear it back. And obviously they would give it back, but not to the extent that I was giving it because what I how I was behaving wasn't normal behavior Mm. you know my children tell me they love me a couple of times a day especially at night time obviously but this was I remember tugging on her skirt and saying Auntie Elaine I love you Auntie Elaine I love you like I remember being like that very very needy but it was because I didn't understand what love was because I hadn't actually experienced that proper family love i hadn't experienced it so i felt at that age that tender age six and a, six and a half that telling someone you loved them was love and if you heard it back you were you were loved i didn't know what it was
1: and then like so you were all and this is what i i need, wanted to ask is you were then only with them for seven years so you were 11 leaving them what happened next
2: so I was 6, 7, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So I was like 12, I was about 12, 12 and a half. Um, so basically my nan stopped drinking. She was out of the marriage that she was in, uh, stopped drinking and fought for custody of me. She fought. Um, It was a really long process for her because she had to prove that she wasn't drinking for a certain period of time. She had to prove that she could provide a stable home life for me. Um, And actually, the judge gave the final decision to me, whether... Whether he actually did or not, I don't know, but he he basically called me in and said, I want to talk to her. I want to hear what she's got to say and where she wants to be. So this whole period of those seven years that I was with my foster family, I've got my nan in my ear. Blood's thicker than water. If your mum was alive, she'd want you with me. Blood's thicker than water. If your mum was alive, she'd want you with me. So she kind of I know that's what she believed. But now looking back on it, I feel like it was like a brainwashing procedure. But she wouldn't have done that consciously, but mm-hmm. it it effectively had that result. I loved my foster family. I had a lot of stability there. And... I think moving in with my nan was another very unstable and and unsettling thing for me to have to go through. Uh, Literally the first day that I moved in, we had a massive argument because I think I had a pair of underwear that had like some little lacy bit, like a black Mm. little bit of lace. They were white knickers, but it just had like a little hole on it or something. Mm. And she was like, a very religious woman oh, that's for harlots. You can't wear things like that. That's not acceptable for a young lady of your age. And I was like, whoa, but it's just a pair of knickers, Nan, you know? And it kind of like, my alarm bells were ringing at that point. And I think I I was unpacking thinking, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back. Also, not only that, this is a one bedroom apartment. My Nan has moved from this gigantic house, Excuse me, <coughs> gigantic house into this very nice area. She always lived in nice areas. <coughs> Sorry,
1: okay, <take> your time. <coughs> um
2: Into this one bedroom apartment on the ground floor, which was tiny mm. for the two of us to live there. And it, initially, I think I was sharing a bed with her to start with. And then I think social services came around and said, look, she needs her own bed. So in her bedroom, she had an up and down sunbed. She had a double sunbed, right? Which I was allowed to go on, by the way. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So she had like a cabin bed made above it. And I used to sleep on that. And then when I didn't want to share a room with her at all, I ended up having... We got rid of one of the sofas in the front room. We had a single bed in there, and that was my bed. And we just used to, I just used to cover it up during the day, but I had. No privacy, no space of my own. From the time that I moved in, I was in control of cooking the food. I think I think it took about six months for me to be in charge of cooking the food, cleaning the house, like basically doing all the parental responsibility jobs in the household. It did, Listen, don't get me wrong, it taught me very, very well. I'm a very good homemaker. But at that point in my life, I needed to be focusing on my schoolwork and that wasn't the key focus it was learning about the bible and keeping the house clean and tidy uh, and cooking meals so yeah it was it was quite a tough time but having said that she did things for me that i hadn't had the experience of before so she would save up money to get me a ticket to go and visit my auntie's in america so mm. I had these life experiences that many people of my age weren't getting because then if you were over 10 and you had a letter you could get um be trans, you know like you could have a stewardess yeah. allocated to you now, I think it's like, yeah yeah I think now it's 13 but mm. then it was like 10 I could uh, you were able to do it so I was literally traveling to sp- to, to port, um America sorry to visit my aunties alone and or she was coming with me and we'd spend two three weeks of time there and I got to experience the way of life in America and you know none of my friends were going on holiday you know on airplanes mm. they were going to Cornwall or Scotland or Wales I was the only one who was having those kind of life experiences so in some ways she gave me a very rich life you know, also, She handcrafted all of my clothes. So I had bespoke clothes that fitted just me and they were of incredible quality. I always looked very well presented. It was just behind the scenes. Things were not great. And it got to the point when I was 15 and I was 15. I'm a 15 year old young girl, young woman, young lady, whatever. I wanted a boyfriend. I wanted to be able to go out on dates. I wanted to go to the cinema. I wasn't thinking about the sexual side of things, but I wanted that companionship. And I met a boy in school and we got on really well. And I really liked his mum and he had some brothers and we just started a relationship. But I told my nan and at the beginning she was okay with it because she knew it was innocent. But I think the older I got the more her fears started to creep in so she became more and more strict with me and it just culminated one day when I I had just started college so I was 16 I was just 16 because my where my birthday is it was at the start of the school year and I basically went to college and there was a guy there who was one of my mum's friends. And we discovered this through communication. And I basically said to him, I can't do this with her anymore will you help me? And he was like, I will lose my job if anybody finds out. I said, I promise you I won't tell anybody. Just please drop me off. Let me get all my stuff and drop me around my friend's house. And he was like, all right, I'll do it just because of who your mum is. So I literally was throwing black bags out of the window and I do not know how she knew. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yep. Okay. I do not know how she knew to come home at that time. But she came home and she literally was like, you know, one of those damsels in distress flailing and... "Ah." Don't leave me. (laughs) Falling in the the doorway. You're going to turn out just like your mother. Like that. And I just stepped over her and I said, Nan, I love you, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. And so... I knew from a very young age that being a hypocrite was something I never wanted to be. So she was forcing me to go to these religious meetings, Jehovah's Witness meetings. And I didn't want to live that life. I wanted to be able to have my life and live it and find out for myself where I wanted to go religious wise and so I just said to her, I can't be a hypocrite I have to move out I have to be away from your rules and then if I want to come back later I will and she never accepted it and I actually didn't talk to her I didn't see her until I was like 19 so I met that's around the time I met my dad so I think I started talking to her again. I just completely cut myself off. Um, the things that happened after me moving out were horrendous, but that's a completely another story. Um, but I was about 19 and I just was like, do you know what? I'll go and see her, see how she's getting on. I can't see you anymore, by the way. You're okay. Keep going. I have you here. You're okay. 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 Um, yeah, and I, and,
1: and I just basically... Where did you meet your dad? So how did you, how did you, like, how did that come about?
2: So how it came about was that my boyfriend and I, I went to a, do you remember those booths where you had your passport photos taken? So I went and sat in one of those booths and I spent like 30 quid, which was a lot of money then. Mm. That was a lot of money. And I got as many as as my change that I had in my spare money, pictures. I just took loads of pictures of myself. I cut them all up. And I wrote my name, my date of birth, and my telephone number on them. And then it was a landline number. I was living in this um, house with this older lady, an old lady. I was just renting a room with her. She was lovely. And I put the, the landline number on there and I, all I knew about my dad was he was Greek Cypriot and he lived um, on an, in a seaside village the, or the, that's where he'd come into the country was at this little seaside village so I or seaside town so I went there with my boyfriend he drove me there and we literally went to every single Greek establishment that we could find. And when I tell you, I spent hours in that place scouring for Greek res- like Greek restaurants, chip shops, takeaways, bars, clubs, whatever, news agents, whatever. And I was just giving these things out to these guys. And I said to them all, do you know this guy? And all I knew was that people used to call him Charlie, yeah, mm-hmm. I knew his surname as well, but I didn't know what his orig- what his real first name was. And all of them were like, no, 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 don't know who he is. No, no, don't know who he is. And then I went into this one place and it was like a calf, but it was massive. And um, it didn't look like a Greek place. But when I looked at the guys over the other side of the council, I was like, 100% these dudes are Greek, 100%. So I went in there and I was like... Um, do you know this guy? And they said, yeah, yeah, we know him. And then one of the brothers like elbowed the other brother that said it and he was like, shut up. Like I see him like saying shut up to him, you know, in silent. And and he was like, oh, you know what Greeks are like? They're like ships that pass in the night. I don't know where he is now. And I just, I just said to him, I said, look, give him this, picture of me if you ever see him give him this picture of me and tell him that this is his daughter and give me a call and about two weeks later I was downstairs in this lady's garden doing some bits of gardening for her and the phone rang and I just my heart sank it wasn't a happy feeling it was like And I looked at her and I said, that's my dad. And she was like, what do you mean? How can you tell us your dad? And I sprinted up the stairs and I said, hello. And I heard this Greek voice and it was a man, a Greek man. And he said, hello, Emily, Uh, I'm your dad. Um, I'm so happy that you, you know, I found you, blah, 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 blah. And and that was kind of it. But our first encounter was not great. I'm not going to lie. Our first encounter was not great.
1: What happened? Can you tell me that?
2: Yeah, so he picked me up from work. I was working at my boyfriend's dad's pub. Um, I was a bar manager there, so I had on a very smart little black suit. My skirt came below my knees. It was a Wallace suit. It was very nice, very you know sharp. looked very professional. White shirt underneath. Picks me up from there in his Mercedes, and he had his nineteen seventies brown suit on, which I guess was the same suit he used to wear out with my mum. <laughs> Um, and when I described it to my nan, she was like, oh, you used to wear that suit with your mum as well. Did it have a pocket silk pocket square? And I said, yeah, she said, a hundred percent. Anyway, so he picked me up from work in his little Mercedes. And we went up to this like main road where there's loads of bars and restaurants. And he was like, where do you want to go? And I said, well, I know the guy that owns that place and and it's quite nice. The food's quite nice in there. So if you want to go in there to sit down and have something to eat or drink, and he was like, yeah, that's fine. So we went in. And then we were sat down and I was sort of sat facing the window. He had his back to the window and the door and the bar was along here. And um, we were just on this tiny little table and we just all were ordering drinks, just like I think I had a Coke or something like that. And he had a cup of tea or something and we were just talking. And then he said, so do you have a boyfriend? And I said, yeah, I do. And he was like, where's he from? And I said, oh, he's from here. Um, me being innocent didn't know what he was trying to get at and he was like yeah but where's he from and I said he's from here you know all right so where's his parents from I saw his parents were from here as well I think his dad lives in Wales and he was like no 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 where's their heritage where are they from and I said oh well his mum's mixed race and his dad's black so that makes him three quarters so I don't know what you would call that and his face dropped and he said you're not planning on having children with him are you and I was like well, no, because I'm really young, but why not? Why why are you asking that? And he said, oh, if you have babies with a black man, they'll come out.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
2: Looking like a baboon, I should have. And then, and then he turned around and said something along the lines of, "I mean, I should have known from the way you're dressed." And I looked at him and I was like, "You know that my skirt comes below my knees, yeah? I'm dressed very respectfully, and I always dress very respectfully." And he was like, "Yeah, well, if you if I'd have brought you up, you wouldn't be dressing like that." And I was just like, "But you didn't bring me up though, did you? Because you chose not to." And so that. Immediately, because I'm a person that I will 100% stand up for myself and say what well, I'm thinking in a situation like that, his back was up and my back was up. But the ironic thing was that the guy that owned the bar that we were in was a black guy and he was famous in our area because he used to play cricket. I think he was a cricketer. And he was famous and a very big black guy. And he walked in, he was like, "Ah, oh, M, so nice see you like that right at the wrong time and I was like hi like that and uh, I was I just and then I was like do you know what in my brain I was like oh do you know what? just talk to him normally so I was like how are you how's things going how's business he was like yeah it's cool and then I said this is my dad um and uh And I introduced them. And then my dad was like, hello. Like, he was just normal. And then um, I said, oh, it's the first time we've met, actually. Like, I'm talking up to him because he's this giant. And I'm Mm. sat on this table. And I'm like, we just met, actually. This is our first time meeting. He's like, oh, my God, what a celebration. Anything you want on the house, food, drink, whatever. What Amazing, like that. And um, I looked at my dad. And my dad's, like, nodding his head. And then he brings the menus. And my dad looks like he's going to order. And I went, hold on a minute. So you'll eat a black man's food and drink his drink, but your daughter can't have babies with one like that. And the guy went, okay, I think I better leave this conversation and literally span on his heels and walked away and so that was the first time I met my dad and that was the exact experience and how it went and it was it just didn't sit well with me I have not got a racist bone in my body I don't I don't even look at the color of someone's skin I'm looking at how they treat other people how they talk how they you know how they act are they respectful you know that's how I'm looking at people. I'm not looking at whether their skin's brown or what color their eyes are. I'm looking at, you know, how you are as a person. And when I saw that from him, I was just shocked and appalled. And I actually, he dropped me back to work and I, he was like, oh, I'll stay in touch. And I just went, "Mm, okay, like that. And I just said, um, thanks for the drinks. And I got out and went to work. And I literally don't think I saw him for another five years genuinely
1: don't think I saw him for another five years. Emily can I and ask in, you sorry on. you said there that you stuck up for yourself and you were at that age 19 years of age sticking up for yourself where'd yeah. you get that from?
2: God you can't have the childhood that I had I mean I was bullied in school really severely bullied I was the only kid that didn't have well I say I was the only kid that didn't have a mum but that's a lie because there was a boy in my class whose mum was friends with my mum and she also met a very similar end but the fact of the matter was is that his grandma was a very straight lady and she was a wonderful human being so prior to his mum passing he was already living with his mum so uh, grandma so everybody kind of viewed her as his mum so he didn't get what I got not as far as I'm aware but I was really badly bullied so I remember one instance one girl said to me oh you're just an adopted little b word and i literally she was and i was tiny i've always been really small so i was this tiny little weight, (laughs) yeah and i was like a stick and i chased i said to her say that again like go on then say that again and she said it again and i was like i'm gonna punch all lights out <laughs> and I chased her around the playground and she ended up having to find a teacher and I was, the teachers were holding me back off her and I'm not a rowdy person. Don't mm. get me wrong. I don't like fighting. I think violence is disgusting. But... I have to, at certain points in my life, stand up for myself. But one thing as well is that if you don't have parents to tell you that you can't talk to adults in a certain way, you will always be able to defend yourself. So although I was very respectful with my dad and my grandma, I did always used to stand up for myself, but not in a disrespectful way, always in a very respectful way. Um, so I think that's where it came from, to be honest with you. I just had had enough. Even now, I've just had enough.
1: And can I ask you as well, you said there that when you left, have you and your foster mom ever had a conversation, on the podcast as well, just about what it was like for them when you decided to go to your nan? They must have been floored.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were heartbroken and it actually... preempted a move for them going back to nottingham um, which was something that they put off because they had me for those seven years because my foster dad is a civil servant and he actually drew, he designs roads so okay. like the m4 he's a very intelligent guy and i think he struggled to find work in the town that i grew up in where they had me um, so i think when they moved to uh back to nottingham for them that was obviously a financially very good move to make and it was something that they'd put off for a long time but also it was kind of a cleansing process for them because it was very hard for them to have lost me like my my foster mom said that um, my foster dad john took it really hard you know because he's such a soft soul there's not there's not an angry bone in that man's body he's the softest person you'll ever meet and i was his little girl like you know he had another little girl um so i think That for him, like she even said on the podcast, it it broke him. It was really hard. My foster mum though is more resilient. She's like me. She's quite a tough old bird. Sorry, mum, saying that, but (laughs) you are. She is quite a tough old bird, and she can, you know to think things through without getting it too emotional. I I know it wasn't easy for them. We did have a conversation about it, but I suffered a lot of guilt because of that decision I made for a very, very long time. And I don't think that I managed to have a conversation with them about it until after I'd had my first daughter which was I mean she's 15 this year so it's not that long ago I was 30 so it took me a long time to be able to have that conversation with them because I was so guilt ridden it was just awful
1: and did that guilt and your trauma did that manifest in you in a certain way or were you just trucking on like or did you did you did it manifest itself in you
2: so I've always carried a lot of guilt I always carried a lot of guilt I always thought my mum's death was my fault I always felt that she wouldn't have become a drug addict if I hadn't have been born um you know, I felt that maybe she wouldn't have become a drug addict if she didn't have a young child and felt cornered and got into a relationship that she knew she probably, probably wasn't good for her. I carried a lot, a lot, a lot of guilt. My whole life, I carried a lot of guilt. Um, and, and, the way I dealt with that over time was to actually recognize that none of it's your fault. You know, yes, I made a decision when I was 12 or 13 years old to go and live with my nan. Um, but it wasn't my fault. If my nan had not have pushed for, for custody of me it wouldn't have been a decision that I would have had to have made and I don't feel it's it's my nan's fault either because I feel like she did what she felt she had to do was get me back into the family fold Um, I just feel like trying to blame people for things actually only causes you more pain and when you realise as a human that things happen not always good things a lot of the time they're bad things but when things happen that you can't just take it as a burden upon yourself you have to just say do you know what it happened I've got to move on from it I have to learn to deal with that uh, the best I can and I think that when you do that instead of trying to place blame because there isn't always a blame to place and what is placing blame doing for you it makes you bitter I was a very bitter person for a very, very long time. I have I have had to work on myself so much. I suffered depression. I suffered anxiety. I hated the world. I didn't like many people. Like, I had a group of friends and I was very sociable, but I didn't like the general population. Mm. I always would watch... EastEnders, Coronation Street, Emmerdale, I'd watch all those things and all that drama all the time. And it was so similar to the drama that I grew up with. It actually felt like watching those things is normal. Soon as I stopped watching EastEnders, Emmerdale, Coronation Street, the news, reading negative things online, it was like that negative external was no longer there. And that was when I was able to then work on myself as a person. And it might sound silly to the outsider because oh, there was only a TV program, but try it. Try not. If you suffer from depression, if you suffer from anxiety, if you have a negative outlook on life, try not watching these drama filled TV programs that suck you in, that you become addicted to. You have to watch them every episode that is on. I mean, I did that and it changed my life but I also did other things like I stopped smoking I stopped drinking I didn't associate myself with people that I knew were ne- negative, like everything that came out of my mouth was negative. When I made those changes, and I recognized that actually, if you make these changes, positive things, positive things happen, because I'm actually a really positive person. Mm. I just had so many external negative influences surrounding me like this great big bubbly cloud. I couldn't push through them. But when I did, when I, those things weren't there the positive me was there it was just I I can't explain it it's like I've been I don't want to say I've been reborn because I haven't but it was like an awakening it was like I've got a second chance at life because that negative person that I was and all those negative feelings I had are no longer there it's crazy like like I can't explain it to you I am level I was like that my whole life. I was ecstatic, depressed, ecstatic, wanted to kill myself, ecstatic, couldn't stand people. I had these waves and troughs and it was so unsettling. It was just horrible. And when you're like that, you can't be happy because there is no middle ground. There's no way to reason because your brain is all over the place. I was crying, laughing, crying. You know, I did try and take my life. I tried to take my life when I was 13 because I couldn't cope with the stress. But I also tried to take my life when I was an adult because I couldn't cope with the stress, the and negativity and the way that I was feeling. Um, but there's a lot to be said for what you allow in. And as soon as I stopped watching all of those soaps, watching crap TV that does nothing to feed your soul or your brain, I saw... It sounds so cheesy, but it really does make a massive difference. And then again, you've also got to look at timeframes. If mm. you are not involved with uh, Emmerdale, EastEnders, Coronation Street, that's like an hour and a half, two hours of your life that you've got that you can spend doing something else. Yeah. And for me, that then became studying. So I bettered myself as a person, my knowledge and who I was, all round just from cutting out really minor things that seemed like nothing but actually were having such a massive
1: negative influence in my life. How old were you when you started to do that?
2: So I would probably say that I stopped watching Coronation like all of those TV shows as negative influences. I stopped smoking Wow. I think I was 28. So smoking, I cut out a really long time ago. I used to drink if I went out. So, and I didn't go out very often, but when I went out, I would drink. So as an adult, not as a young adult, mm. as a grown adult. So I would drink a lot on the nights that I would go out, but I probably would go out once a year. So cutting those two things out. So smoking when I was 28, alcohol, I only cut out completely completely three and a half years ago. Uh, But I think because I had it so uh, not very frequently, um, it wasn't really a negative impact in my life. Um, So I don't think that was relevant. But the TV and negative people, I think... Um, was when my youngest had been born. Yeah, it was when my youngest had been born and I was at the lowest point of my life. I had three children. I was a single mum. I lost all my hair. I shaved it all off. What was there? These straggly bits. Shaved it all off. And I completely immersed myself in in going to the gym and being a fitness freak. And... Every opportunity that I could get with when she was like, I think I, w- I would like my little one, I'd ask my friend to look after her for a couple of hours so I could go to the gym or I I do exercises. It started out me doing exercises in the house with her as a baby, actually. Mm. So I would put her on on my shoulders and I'd squat with her and she found it hilarious. <laughs> she thought it was great. And I'd lunge up, I had a long living room. I'd lunge up and down the living room. I cut out sugar because for me that was a massive problem I literally would li- I lived off chocolate and biscuits I wasn't eating and I knew that was affecting my mood and my mental health it was also affecting my body I was like, literally like a stick I hardly ate anything Also, that was to do with finances. I was financially struggling, but I could have quite easily made myself a sandwich and I wouldn't. I'd just eat a couple of biscuits instead. So I cut out sugar. I started training at home. I made a friendship with somebody who lived in my block, and her partner was a personal trainer. She said to me, would you be willing to look after our youngest and our middle one after school a couple of times a week? And I said to her, look, I don't want paying, but what I want you to do is get your fella to personal train me a couple of times a week in, in return. And she was like, let me talk to him and see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And that was when my life literally flipped, It, it flipped, turned around. I, so I'm not eating sugar I'm eating really healthy so I'd eat a chicken breast and some broccoli or something like that I was, I, it was not big portions because I couldn't afford it but I was looking after my body And then I started doing personal training with him. And he was like, you are really fit. You've got something I've not seen in many women. He was like, you're powerful. You, your fitness levels are peak. What have you been doing? And I said, I've just been working out upstairs in the flat. You know, I do some squats. I do some lunges. I might go for a run. He said, you're in really good shape. So he started sizing with me. And, um, and then he said to me, I can't train you anymore. You're going to have to get a gym membership. And that's when I got a gym membership and I started pumping weight. And I focused all that negative energy that I was focusing before into gym and training and bettering myself. And then I started bettering my mind. So I was then studying and learning and I went back to college and I did a beauty course and, you know, I was doing all these things and it was just all of them were positive things. Going to the gym's not negative, Mm-hmm. Unless you're pumping steroids in your body, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. um, learning is not negative unless you only ever learn until you die. You have to do something with the learning. So I she so she's eleven this year. so this probably this way of life and thinking started ten years ago, one hundred percent, and I've not looked back. I've literally not looked back. I don't turn the TV on in my house. That's the truth. I might watch one um, movie a week on Sky on um, what's it called Netflix. I might watch one or two movies a week. I literally don't. I don't watch TV. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. I and don't have
1: time anymore to be honest no, and, but, yeah. and <laughs> tell me, tell me um, because you where I found I found you through the podcast to be perfectly honest that's yeah. where I found you. you just came up on my For You but then I had I went down the rabbit hole of your life then and the love luxury and, and yeah. the billionaire's wife and the billionaire's daughter <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's 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 I don't want to say like and I don't want to offend like pretty woman I don't want to say any like that, that kind of thing but no, it just I, went I, yeah. do, do you know what I'm saying and I don't mean that you know officiously yeah. around anything like that it, again like is it you went you'd such poverty in your life to where you are now so can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that because I know you're pressed for time you have to go home to the kiddies but if you can tell me a little bit about that oh, where I'm did sorry. you meet the husband and so on
2: so uh, that was really good lead on actually because I'd started studying beauty and I was doing microblading because I'd hardly had any eyebrows from losing my hair Your eyebrows and are fat, that- by the way now <laughs> Looking- I draw them on, look, 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 I'm such a good drawer on. <laughs> <laughs> I should get a crayon and do it. Yeah, so basically, um, my beauty just went into microblading because I knew there had to be something on the market to help women like me to boost their confidence, and I found microblading right at the beginning before anybody else did. I found this company, and they were training in Harley Street. And I went and I did my training course. I saved up my pennies, and I did, my, did the training course. It wasn't easy, and... Um, When I was on the course, the woman who trained me, who I still talk to to this day, she's a lovely lady, Chrissy. She said to me, she said, you have to teach because you are so good at explaining things to people. She said, you've only learned about this today. And when your clients have come in for their treatment, she said, it's like you've been doing it forever. Um, And so what then happened was that I set up like a temporary business at Harley Street in the same building so I was doing my beauty from there and my husband just so happened to have a clinic there that I think he was running with an ex-partner and we crossed paths many times so we knew each other from then and we would just be like hi how are you you know yeah how's business going yeah good great thanks no nothing more than that I knew he was with someone I was in a relationship that was it and then I wanted to branch out and I said to myself do you know what granddad my granddad taught me a lot about gold and I could just see that there was something on the market for watches people were beginning to get really into this hype for watches so I called up um about I liked, was doing researching and I did I looked up this Rolex authentication course. I thought that's a good thing to learn. It was it was like pennies as well. It was, <laughs> I think it was less than hundred pound or something. It was minor money, but it was in Birmingham. But I thought, do you know what? I'll get someone to look after the children for the day. I'm earning money now. It's just something extra to add on. And as it turned out that when I got there, Adam was there. So we sat next to each other and we had a conversation. And he and I, he was like, oh, how's your other half? And I said, I'm not with him anymore. And I was like, how's yours? And he said, I'm not with her anymore. And we were like, oh. Oh, my God. Okay. I think we both kind of like, okay. Like that. And then he was like, so what brought you to this? Because this has got nothing to do with beauty. And I said, "I said, well, my granddad used to sit me down with these giant two-litre tur- Ice cream tubs full of gold when I was a kid. And I just thought to myself, what can I do that's like going to be worth doing? You know, just something to add on. Because, like I said, I love learning. I'm very good at learning. And he was like, oh, that's really good. And I said, why are you here? And he said, I keep getting watches brought into my businesses and I don't know if they're genuine. So I need to find out, you know, how to authenticate them. He said, I've got a good idea, but I want to, you know, have like some kind of official document. And I was like, that's okay, cool. And then we sat next to each other and we exchanged numbers. And then literally we just started dating and it just went from there. We've literally been inseparable ever since. We got married very
1: quickly. Did you? How long? Tell me.
2: So we were dating for three months when we had our religious ceremony, our nikah. And then we got legally married six months after that. So we were together for nine months when we had our legal marriage, which doesn't sound that bad. But the three months does.
1: Yeah, it does. Oh, my God. But you know, what? like how like the universe works, like the fact that hang on, you're in Harley Street, you say hi and then you go to Birmingham and that's where you see each other.
2: Yeah, I yeah, know yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy, and the thing is, you know what? We actually went and revisited that course. It was like, I don't think anybody on the course oh, that booked the course would have known that um, it was us—that the same people. Yeah. It was really because we both sat down and we were like should we go and do that course again? Maybe there's some new things for us to learn because things do change. You should go and, like authentication courses, you should go and brush up your skills quite regularly. So we both sat down and we're like, let's go and do it. So we booked a hotel and it was like a little reminiscing thing. It was really <laughs> sweet. And we just had a really, we stayed there. We had a really lovely evening, went out for the meal. We went and did the course, went out for a meal afterwards and we came home to home to London. We did that like two years ago, I think, or yeah, about two or three years ago. But yeah, it was, it was lovely, you know. It's so sweet.
1: Oh my God. And tell me about the kids and Adam, like, were they, was it difficult that transition for them or were they straight away?
2: So, for my youngest, it wasn't a problem at all because she was still really young. So, we've been together six years now. So, she was just a little dot, really. She was four or five age. My other daughter is five years older than her. So, it was much harder for her at the beginning. It was fine. It was absolutely fine. And then when we got married, so we had our nikah. I don't think she really Can you understood tell me what that what
1: that is because uh, okay,
2: yeah. sorry. Yeah, sorry. So a nikah is a Muslim religious ceremony. So it's your Sharia wedding. So it falls under Sharia law. So it means that under Sharia law. I'm his legal wife and that he has to follow the Islamic beliefs in looking after me and I have to, the same for him. So it's just so that it's, we call it a halal, so your, your relationship is halal. Okay. So... Prior to that, it wasn't halal. And after that, it was halal because we, you know, we did mm. things properly. Um, so that's what a nikah is. And it happens in the mosque and it, the imam blesses it. It's just like a wedding, basically, mm. but it's just in the mosque. Okay. So that's that. And the, she was there with the two girls were there. Um, and they, we're fine about it i don't think they really understood what it was even though i explained to them they didn't really understand and then we got married legally in the march and again i don't think the old my older daughter really kind of fathom what was happening because we had a conversation about three weeks afterwards and she said yeah but you and daddy could still get back together again Ah. Uh-huh. And I said, honey, we can't. I said, I'm married to Adam and I love Adam and daddy's moved on with his life and we've gone our separate ways. And I think that then caused her a lot of problems. Um, she is very resistant to our relationship. Um, she struggles with it a lot because she, I think in her brain, she just always wants me and her dad to be back together again. Um, Which is really sad for her. It's really sad for her.
1: And did you have to convert um, over to, because again, I have to be very honest with you, in Ireland, um, the, the Muslim community would be very small. It would be very very yeah. small. So, and again, yeah. and I always say when I even when I'm talking to, to people with inactive uh, in active addiction and just them the words we use that we're, we shouldn't be using anymore. And I always say I don't mean to cause offense. It's and it, it is ignorance with me. It's just I don't know. And that's why yeah. I'm I'm like, did you have to convert to Muslim to? Yeah, is that what is that what what I'm saying? Is that right? So
2: yeah, so we call it revert because Muslims believe that everybody is born as a Muslim, okay. and then their parents choose the path for them, or they choose the path for themselves. So I reverted before we had our nikah, so I did do it quite quickly, um, and the reason was because um, my husband basically sat me down and he said, "Look, I, if I don't want to do something that's wrong." I don't, I I want to change my life and I want to do things the right way. So, and he had had Nikar before. Yeah, he'd been in that situation before. So it wasn't the first time for him. But I basically, we sat down. It was just a mutual conversation. We both sat down, we talked about it. And he said, how do you feel about... You know, becoming a Muslim. And I said, well, I mean, I'll look into it. I'm not opposed to it. I'll look into it. I'll do some research and see how I go. And I said to him, but are you going to make me wear a headscarf? He said, no, I can't force you to wear a headscarf. I said, you're going to make me pray. He said, no, I can't force you to, to pray. I said... I said to him, good, because if you did try and make me do something, then it was not going to work between us because mm. I'm not that person. You you know, don't try and control me. I said, you can teach me things. And if I want to do something a certain way, I will. Um, and so basically I sat down for like three weeks every evening and I was watching videos on YouTube from a really good teacher called Mufti Menk. Mm. Um, we're hoping to get him on a podcast actually wow. here with I hope, I hope so. He's, he helped me come to Islam. And the reason being because he makes his teaching so easy to understand. He, there's no beating around the bush. He just says, and he explains and his manner is so calm and welcoming and relaxed. So I spent a lot of time watching his videos and i if I had a question about Islam, I put it into Google and I would never find a straight answer. So I would then go and find one of his videos that talks about, it, and he would talk about it and I would understand. So wet the way maybe if I hadn't found him, musty menk, I mm-hmm. wouldn't be a Muslim today, but because I found him and the way he teaches uh, non-Muslims and Muslims about Islam, I just was so endeared towards it. I, you know a lot of people have misconceptions about Islam they think women are second class citizens it's the exact opposite it's the exact opposite in Islam a woman is more highly regarded than a man she who has children is they say that the feet of uh, sorry the gates of heaven lay at a mother's feet you treat your mother with respect you're going to fly through those gates that women are honestly so highly revered yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful like even down to things like I don't have to do anything for my husband, yeah? That's what the Quran says. I do not have to cook for him, I do not have to clean for him, I don't have to do anything for my husband that I don't want to do. But if I want to do it and I choose to do it, there are blessings around doing that. Whereas a husband has to provide for his wife, he has to provide for his children. That's Islamic law, but I don't have to do anything. I don't Mm. have to. It's choices. And women are very highly regarded. You know, there's this thing in the Quran, uh, uh, a scripture in the Quran. I don't know what the scripture is, but I read about it recently. And it said that when a boy is born into the world, he comes with one noor. n o o -O I can't remember exactly. And it means light. So a boy brings one light into the world. When a woman comes into the world, she brings two noors. That is how special women are in Islam. We are double light comparison to men and that's because we have the capability of bringing children into this world which is something that should be highly respected and revered um so when i was it's amazing Mm. it's amazing people have so many misconceptions oh they walk behind their husband that's not islamic that's cultural so don't get it mixed up oh she covers from head to foot That's not Islamic. That's cultural. I cover my hair as a mark of respect to Allah and my husband because women undoubtedly are far more beautiful when their hair is showing and that means more men are going to look at me when I walk down the street. I don't want to put my husband in that situation of having other men looking at me. The only man I want to look at me is my husband. And so there's certain things that are very misunderstood about our religious beliefs um, that when I found out about it and I cleared those misconceptions up, I was so endeared to the faith. And it's very similar to how I was brought up. Uh, As a Jehovah's Witness, there are a lot of similarities with regards to respect and how you act and the religion itself that I, it was so easy for me and it felt right. It was just the right thing for me to do.
1: What was it like for you, if I can ask you, the first time that you put your hair up?
2: Oh, that was, diff. that wasn't easy. That wasn't easy because I don't know if you know the story behind this, but it's a bit comical. I lost my hair again I started losing my hair again um, after just having managed to get it all back um, and it wasn't stressed this time so it's definitely something in my body and I was like I, I was very upset about it and I said to my husband do you mind if I cut my hair really really short and just have like a long bit on the front because to make it look a bit more feminine because I don't I don't want to be walking around with big patches in my hair. And he said, he was like, babe, whatever makes you happy. I don't care how you wear your hair. It's still you. Just do whatever feels good for you. So I went and cut it all off. I had it really short, long on the front. looked really funky and cool, but it didn't look so nice brown. So I was like, all right, I'll bleach it blonde. So I bleached it blonde, got some advice from my friend who's a hairdresser. Did it all at home because I couldn't get down to her because I was so busy with work. She's miles away, two-hour drive. Oh, my gosh. And Yeah, I know. It's long. Like, it's not happening. I'm not driving two hours to get my hair done to drive back because it becomes a whole day. And then I've missed a whole day of earning money and doing things. So, (laughs) anyway, I did it myself. And I said to her, Look, it's a little bit copperish. She said, Look, really easy solution get some purple shampoo and conditioner, put it on, read the bottle put it on so there's me washing my hair with a shampoo purple shampoo washing my body cleaning my teeth shaving my legs doing my armpits well obviously I left it on way too long didn't I rinsed it off my hair was purple (laughs) because obviously it was so porous from being bleached that it just sucked in the pigment of the purple anyway that's not a good look when you're selling high-end luxury goods okay it's okay for some people but it wasn't right for me and yeah. so I found I was just trying to find ways of covering my hair finding ways to cover my hair and I came up with this way and I felt really comfortable with it and I said to my husband I'm only going to wear it like this for two weeks because if I wash it like twice three times a week during you know for the next two weeks that's like six washes it'll be out the purple will be out he's like that's all right whatever you want to do and then the two weeks was up and he said how come you still wear it like I think it was like the third or fourth week he was like how come you're still wearing your scarf and I said I just don't want to take it off I'd like it feels like it's part of me now my identity i I I don't want to take it off, and you like, "Oh, Allah works in mysterious ways, <laughs> like that." And um, and it's, that's just how it came about. But that it wasn't easy at the start, but it's very easy now. And like now, I don't even in the house, I don't want to take it off. It's it's who I am. Yeah,
1: and I only I obviously could only know you like this, like you know. What you mean? Yeah. So for me, it's like that. And yeah. um, and then Emily, can I ask you because I I will let you go none of you will tell you. And yeah. um, you're traveling all around the world how yes. do you stay humble is it your how you were like your your past
2: 100% i think the fact that i had a really unfortunate childhood has kept my feet firmly on the ground and even to this day i still budget my money i only i own, i say to my husband i only want a small amount of money we agreed on a sum we sat down a, and agreed on a sum and i said i only want that amount of money every single month and i want to pay all the bills i want to buy all the food i want to make sure i pay the child care everything put petrol in the car whatever it needs to be i want to make sure that i am allocating all the funds and you know what i I feel like doing that has really helped me if I want something and I ask my husband and, and say like uh, I've not got enough extra left over can I have a pair of shoes and an outfit and this and that and the other if I asked him for the whole of Harrods he'd say yes mm. but I don't ask for that because I don't need it and I don't want it and he is very generous with me when I because he knows that when I ask for something it's not very often you know mm. um and even if it was often, he'd still be generous to me. He's a vet, my husband's very generous, a, a, a kind person with me. Uh, he's not going to give to everybody, but yeah. he's very generous <laughs> to me. Um, and I feel like that's a really good way for me to stay grounded is that whole remembering, actually, I had to budget for a really, really, really long time. Mm-hmm. So keeping that budgeting skill and not just having unlimited <gasps> funds and a credit card that I can tip and you know tap wherever yeah. I go yeah. and that's how i I feel like that's the way
1: and how do you every day instill that in your kids i think it's much harder yes it is to do that for your children (laughs) it's much harder because when you have
2: stuff when you have money you want to be able to give your children the stuff that you didn't have yeah but what i have this rule of is if they don't need it i'm not buying it for them so I don't just let them spend money willy nilly. Mm. Um, the youngest, she wants stuff like it's she wants designer <laughs> design stuff because she's in this world. She's part of this team. Yeah. Um, but I just say to her, do you need it? And she goes, well, no, I just want it. And I say, if you don't need it, then we don't need to buy it. But if you want it and it's something you really want, then we'll look at it and still see if you want it in a month. And I kind of take that tack with them because I don't want them to be frivolous with money because then... When, when i pass and my whatever the future holds i don't want them to just waste the fortunes away i don't want that to happen
1: absolutely because it can
2: very easily happen
1: yeah and like it's to say with us in the house like you know we've a nice life here um in dublin and my kids they have every everything that i can give them but i'm also now i i you know Go out to the homeless and it, Dublin is really uh, terrible right now for the homeless. It's really, you know. it's really suffering and um, which I'm sure uh, London is as well. But like I try yeah. to teach the girls that, you know, we have to be charitable. We go around, we talk to these people, we find out their names, we find out their story. And now she she'll get in the car. She's um, eight and she'll get in the car with me and she'd be like, are we going to see this one today or that one? And I go, we'll just see who's around, you know, and she'll go. Yeah. She'll say, can I get out of the car? And I'd say, yeah. And I, 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 through my little platform, people have given me lots of donations. And stuff sort of like that, like tracksuits, trainers, they love the trainers, you know? Um, yeah. And we'd go around and she'd be like, now who's these for? Like, so I'm always trying to instill in them that just because we can afford it doesn't mean everyone. So for you, on the level that you're doing it, I just as well to what your daughter's living in that life, so she knows no different. Yeah. It, She doesn't, but we do the same as you, don't we? I don't know if you've seen the video. So we go
2: out and give charity. And um, we actually most recently went to an event with Mufti Meng very recently. He was speaking, and we built financially built eight houses for refugees um syrian refugees so um we do do a lot but i always make sure that she sees that as well it's very important and i'm I'm not a yes mum. i do say no a lot even though i could say yes i say no a lot and i i want her to stay grounded i do and we always give as well she has to blitz her room for her (laughs) drawers summer and winter so her toys and her clothes she has to blitz summer and winter and we pack those up and we take she will physically take them to the charity shops or to the refugee camps or wherever it is that we're going to be donating those things on that time so she's seeing that as well but the stuff that she had has to be donated we don't just chuck it away or give it away to people we give it to people that really really need it
1: and the last question before i let you go why did you start the podcast and who has been your favourite guest so far
2: Um, so I had a gentleman come on I don't want to count family because that's being biased. I had a gentleman come on and his name's Carl and he's an ex-drug addict. And I probably enjoy talking to him more than I've ever enjoyed talking to anyone before. He's such a lovely guy. He's just, I'm just so proud of him because Mm -hmm. his life could have gone such a different way. And he messages me even now. He sends me text messages. Thank you so much for putting me on the podcast because of the podcast. Somebody contacts me. They've done donated me a bleed kit, wow. you know, he messages me all, like I get messages from him a lot and he's always thanking me. He's the most grateful guest I've ever had. And it was a no brainer for me. He actually wants to go on Adam's podcast and I said, no, he's got to come on mine. His story mm. is for me. The reason I started it, I'll be honest with you. I feel like everybody views me as this rich woman who sells expensive handbags and they've pigeonholed me into yeah. that. But there's so much more to me than just that side of my life. And I've got so much more to give to people. And if the podcast can lead on to me having a chat show where I get these kind of people on, where they can talk about their life stories and we Mm -hmm. can, you know, I, I would love it. You know, who wouldn't? And I just, I feel like you know, the podcast was the next step. I just wanted people to know me and I really wanted to meet people as well. I Mm. really wanted to meet Mm. people. Like I meet a lot of people. I don't ever get time to sit down and talk to them. Yeah. So a podcast is a really great excuse to get to know somebody.
1: So it just, it was just, there was a multiple things, but those are the main reasons. I had one, my guest last week and she, um, she came, but she went to get a facial and then she went next door to get a blow dry. She never goes there to get a blow dry. Chatting to the hairstylist and the hairstylist says, you OK? She's on I'm really nervous. I'm recording a podcast tonight. And she was like, we're here. And she's like, everywhere we go. And she's like, oh, we were on that podcast about my sister's Aww. cancer story. And then I'm Aww. like, and I get messages, I'm sure you do too, about people saying, you know, especially with, with drug addiction um, and recovery, like saying to me, I because of your podcast, I saved my uncle this week. I got my uncle into treatment because of your podcast, I'm checking my breasts because of your podcast. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I've noticed somewhere else out there and it's just amazing. So, you know, it's really the work we do. I know like I'm like, I'm not like taking like big headed, but like the work we do, I love the work we do because it's yeah. it's great that we can do these things. Tell me, Emily, the name of the podcast, please, for everybody.
2: So it's um, Emily Abraham presents the Love Luxury podcast. So that's the name.
1: Yep, Excellent. Emily, on that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank no. you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Perfect. Emily, thank you so much. I know you're busy um, and thank you so much. Thanks. This will go out probably Monday. Have you got a bank holiday on Monday in the UK? Yes. Yeah, we have yeah, too. Yeah. So I think Monday or Tuesday day. it'll go out. Perfect.